Good morning, everybody. How are you? Sounds really impressive if you say you're going to do a whole book today, but the whole book is only 15 verses. Anyway, uh, my name is Steve Kyle. I'm an elder here at the Way Fellowship. As uh, Tom mentioned, we're going to be in 3 John today and finishing up that epistle and John's epistles. Um, so, uh, first of all, if you're new here, welcome. If you're um, not new here, if you've been coming, welcome back. We thank you for take, spending your time with us. Um, and uh, I think before we go any further, let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for your grace and giving us a place to meet and supplying all the things needed for that. Thank you for your goodness in sending your son, in wanting a relationship with us, in preserving your word to us so that we know how to live, how to act, how to speak, um, in imitation of him. Thank you for these people. Thank you for our time together. More than anything, Heavenly Father, we pray for your presence, that you are in each heart, that you are energizing that Christ in us to uh, hear what we need to hear, to learn what we need to learn. Thank you for your goodness. And it's in your precious uh, Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, let's go over our memory verse on this huge screen right here. So our memory verse is um, 2 John chapter 1, verse 6. And let's read it together if we could. Okay. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. 2 John 1.6. I encourage you when you do um, memory verses like this, memorize the location, the address, so to speak, because then if you're talking to somebody and you need to go to the address, you know what it is, because you'd be surprised as you put God's Word into your mind how the Lord can use that as you're talking to people. Oh, yeah, it's like this, and you know where that is. There's nothing more valuable, I think, than getting somebody's, including ours, eyes on the book. Remember Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even into dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's nothing like getting somebody's eyes on the book. So I encourage you to memorize the address too, as well as the verse. Um, and then by way of, before we read 3 John, let's talk just about a couple of things by way of review. Um, remember that we believe reliably, I think, that John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistles. That um, at this time in his life, D.A. brought up, mentioned last week that he uses the word elder to refer to himself. An elder can be used to refer to somebody who's in a position of leadership, but it can also be used just to indicate age. Um, remember, John, John the Apostle had a front row seat to Jesus' whole ministry. He was there from the start, probably a little younger than Jesus was. Um, according to Luke, Jesus, it says he began to be about 30 years of age when he started his ministry. John was probably a little younger than that. But when he wrote these epistles, we're talking about, um, it was in the probably mid-80s, 90 AD, so perhaps 50, 55 years after Jesus' death resurrection, ascension. So John is truly an elder here. 
And the reason I want to mention that, and I was glad that D.A. mentioned it last week, is that you got to put yourself in John's shoes, right? John's one of the original, actually at this point, he's the only remaining apostle. All of the other apostles have been killed. We don't know biblically how many of them died, but probably most, if not all, were martyred. They were killed for their faith, one for one reason or another, one place or another. John's the only one remaining. How... Um, how powerful do you think it was in his mind to make sure this got passed on, that the next generation got this? Because he was the last living apostle, perhaps one of the last living witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, perhaps one of the living, last living witnesses of Jesus' ministry. There may have been others, but there wouldn't be too many others. Lifespans in the first century weren't what they are now. People didn't live to be 90, 100 years old, generally speaking. Um, you know, 45, 50, 55. One of the reasons Anna, in early, in, uh, early in the book of Luke, it says she's, I think, four score years, and that was so unusual, which is why the record says that, because you didn't live that long. So John is concerned about passing this to the next generation, and we'll see that in this letter as well as a couple of things he mentions in 2 John. Um, and the other thing about, uh, so this period of time, I didn't have a slide for this, and I apologize, but if you take your Bibles or on your phone, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just want to show you one verse, and again, we're just getting a feel for what these times were like, and kind of a glimpse. These, these epistles really sort of give us a glimpse into the early church. 2 Timothy chapter 1. You may remember we've talked before about the fact that Nero, the Emperor Nero, um, he started a pretty vigorous persecution of Christians in 64 AD. You know, Rome burns, there's a huge destruction in Rome. He blames it on the Christians. So there's a huge persecution. And that's not just in Rome, it's going to be empire wide. At the time that Paul's writing this, there's another emperor. If you guys want to look this up on your own for you geeks, his name is Domitian. Um, and he probably, many think, he had a pretty vigorous persecution as well, except that he ruled significantly longer, 81 to 96. He was around for a while, and he was a poor ruler like Nero was. The point is, at this time, when he's writing these epistles, there's a persecution going on. Um, it did early on, maybe Nero's time was maybe 30 years before, so there's a significant persecution going on now. It wasn't I will just say it wasn't necessarily easy to be a Christian. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Let's just read this verse, and I'll mention one or two things. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 15, last letter that Paul wrote, and he writes here, This you know, writing to Timothy, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, the reason I mention that is John the Apostle, the guy that wrote these epistles, he oversaw the churches in this Asia area. You may remember from the book of Revelation, the seven churches that are talked about. Those were in Asia. One of them was Ephesus. And he probably, John, the apostle, probably oversaw a lot of the, the work in Ephesus. But because of this climate, right, this, we're reading a scripture, this truth that, that Paul points out, this is about 20 years or so before what we read of 3 John when that was written. But you see that there's nobody standing with Christianity in that Asia area now. The point being, 
Christians didn't necessarily meet a lot in large groups like this. Now, we do see large groups. In Acts chapter 2, there's 3,000. Acts chapter 3, there's uh, 4,000. Uh, or No, Acts chapter 4, I'm sorry, there's 5,000. We see in Acts 19 in Ephesus that thousands of people probably brought their magic arts, their, their books of, of chants and that sort of thing and burned them, so there was a big work there. But the point is a lot of Christianity wasn't like this in group, large groups because of the persecutions. It was in home fellowships like we have as well. It was in home fellowships. And that we'll talk about that a little later. So what John oversaw in that Asia area, those seven churches probably were home fellowships mostly. Not that there weren't larger groups, but there were a lot of the home fellowships because of the climate, because of the atmosphere. <clears throat> I think with that, let's go ahead and read this Third John epistle, and then we'll talk about a couple of things. Again, these Second John and Third John really read more like personal letters. They're not necessarily doctrinal letters like Romans, for example, where Paul is writing such that he's sort of methodically setting out a doctrine, or even First John is that way in some ways. But Second and Third John are more like a letter you would write. Great learning that we, can learn, that we get from these. And they can, again, give us a glimpse into the early church, but they're, not, they're more personal in nature. So let's read 3 John. We'll start in verse 1. The elder to the be beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. We have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. So, as I was reading this, again, a glimpse into the early church, one of the things that struck me is what we saw in our memory verse twice, you know, walk, the idea of walk. What we see in verses 3 and 4 of 3 John, for I rejoice greatly, just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. This idea of walk um, is many times used in God's Word to indicate behavior, but to the 20th century, 21st century now American, I'm not sure we get the significance of this for somebody who was reading this epistle, who was listening to this at this time. Um, let's look at uh, 
Let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Like magic. Is it there? No? Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. I'm sorry. Oh, there we go. Good. So this is one of the instances when walk is practical, when we see what this means to somebody who was listening to John Wright. Okay? It says, <clears throat> Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now, a couple of little details. Galilee is way up north, right? Galilee is up by the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth, Jesus Christ's hometown, was up in Galilee. In fact, it's at the southernmost point of the area called Galilee. Now, it says where John was baptizing. He was baptizing down by Bethany, right, which is down near Jerusalem, right in this area. So the distance between those two is about 65 or 70 miles. And what does Jesus do to go that distance? He walks. Average journey there, if you, if you were healthy, robust, you walked for a whole day, you'd walk about 20 miles. If you were really feeling it that day, you might go 25. But the point is, it would take him three or four days to go from Nazareth down to where he was going to be baptized. So a couple of things. Number one, look at how significant it was to Jesus that he be baptized. <laughs> look at how important it was to him that he be baptized, number one. Number two, um, remember that in first century Israel, walking was not optional. For example, now, you know, if my wife and I, why don't we take, a, take the dog for a walk? We don't have to do that. It doesn't matter if we do or we don't. What difference does it make? We leisurely walk along. Who cares? Or the dog pulls you at one of the two, you know. So, but it doesn't matter now. Remember then, um, they didn't have indoor plumbing, guys. So where did, what did you have to do to go to the bathroom? Walk to the outhouse, what we call an outhouse, right? You had to walk. What do you think, they didn't have, again, indoor plumbing, so how do you think they got water? A gallon of water weighs eight pounds. So you put a pole across your shoulders, you got a bucket on each side full of water, and you carry the water walking because there wasn't any other option. It wasn't like walking was optional like it is now. The reason I'm explaining all this is when a first century believer heard walk, it was purposeful. It was absolutely necessary. You couldn't not do that, or you couldn't go to the bathroom. You wouldn't get water. You wouldn't get food if you didn't walk. So when they, there is kind of inherent in this encouragement to walk, it's a very purposeful, deliberate activity. It's not something that's, oh, let's, let's just saunter around the golf course. No, it wasn't like that. It was very needed. The other instance of walking a longer distance, and I'm not sure why we'll talk about that. Let's look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 13. And I apologize, I just don't want to read ahead of you guys. There we go. So that says, uh, then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Now, they were going from, it's not mentioned in this verse, they were going from a place called Troas to Assos, right? So the party in general is going to take a ship. Paul decides he's going to walk. This is a journey of about 20 miles. Don't know exactly why he did it, although it's this section of Paul's life where he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he says just a little bit after this that he goes bound in the Spirit 
that he feels like he's got to go, but he also says, I don't know what's going to happen there. I don't know what's going to befall me. So the point is, he needed some time with God. Again, very purposeful walk. It wasn't just, oh man, this is great weather. No, it was, there was a purpose in it. So when the first century believers hear walk, they hear deliberate activity. That is, I'm deciding I'm going to do this, I'm going to go this far, I'm going to accomplish this goal. So when we read walk in our memory verse, or we read, um, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, that implies a very active Christian life, something that we decide about. Now, Paul kicks this up a little bit of a notch. And if we can, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll read a few verses here. Nine, uh, this, these are just fantastic verses. Just fantastic verses. Uh, a, a window into Paul's soul, into Paul's thinking, but also what he wants for all believers. He says, uh, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now I point that out because Paul sort of kicks up the metaphor here of walk to compete, to run. And that perhaps communicates a little better to a 21st century American. I mean, again, we walk just because we have to, you know, get from point A to point B, but it's not like we're going to, we got to walk to an outhouse, we got to get water so we can eat, we got to walk to the store so we can get food. We don't have to do that. But America is very into the competing thing, into the working out thing, into the fitness thing. So in some ways, this analogy works better. A couple of things point out here. <laughs> the way these verses read, you know, when he says... Um, when he says, uh, therefore I run not with uncertainty, and he encourages them, run in such a way that you may obtain, that implies that everybody's in the race, right? It's, that's, it's not that we're not running. It's that are we running well? Are we being deliberate about the race? I don't know about you, my history as, a, you know, I was raised Lutheran from when I was, my parents were fantastic, they were wonderful, I was raised in Lutheran church. Um, but as I got older and I get developed a sense for, you know, my Christianity versus the pastor or the volunteers or whatever, I think I bought into the, I will say the 80-20 rule because I like to think that I really thought it was 80-20. It's more like 95-5 and that is um, that, that the guys up here, the people up here, the volunteers, whatever, do 95% of everything and I do five. In other words, that the race, that, that I wasn't necessarily in the race, they were in the race. I was a spectator. But that is not the case. That's not what this verse says. It says, so run that you may obtain. Run in such a way that you win. Now, does that, <laughs> it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're going to be first. It doesn't mean that. And we'll, we'll look at that. You know, we don't, like, we don't want to be like this guy, Diotrephus. Here, here's why. This, you don't want to be this guy. You know, when 
It comes time when he's going to be standing before the Lord. You don't want to be this guy. Here's why. It says, uh, who loves to have the preeminence among them. What that phrase means, one Greek word, is one Greek word. It means loves to be first. Only place in the Bible that that word is used to describe this guy. You don't want to be that guy. You're not going to win because you're first. That's not the point. The point is you're responding to what God is working in you, to your race. Everybody's got a race. Your race is different than mine. Your race, my race, is not the Apostle Paul's. It's your race. As God works in your heart. Let's look at, uh, let's see. Oh, I wanted to mention one thing about this analogy that Paul uses of so run that you may obtain and, you know, don't you know that everybody that runs, runs to win. And he mentions a perishable crown. A perishable crown at that point. We're talking like, so he's writing to the people in Corinth. Corinth was one of the places where the Olympic Games started, right? They had the Corinthian Games. So they would compete. And uh, you know what the winner got? You know what they're, nowadays we got medals. We got, uh, what do you call those things? Um, you know, for, like for, for athletic companies, you get, to, they, you get to use your name and you get money for it. So, yeah. So, uh, you know what they got in the first century? They got uh, a circle, you know, a, a little crown of, of leaves. And it might be, um, frequently it was pine needles. Or um, sometimes it was, believe it or not, parsley. Now, if you've ever been to a fancy restaurant and they garnished your plate with parsley, um, or, you know, maybe, maybe you had some at home and then like the next morning you see the parsley. What does the parsley look like? Exactly. Limp. You're going to throw it away. That was their perishable crown. That's what they got. Perishable crown. But then he sets the contrast. We run to win for an imperishable crown. It's not something that's going to be gone in a few hours. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And it says there, um, this is again Paul, last, some of the last things he tells Timothy. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, the New King James Version does a great job there of accurately translating the Greek when it says, the good fight, the race, the faith. Because Paul has his race in mind. But the point is, remember, we're all in the race. Run that you may obtain. Nobody isn't in the race. The question is, are you running? And again, your race may not be the Apostle Paul's. You may not decide that you're willing to sacrifice 30 years of your life, go out on the mission field, have owned nothing, do whatever the Lord moves you to do, no matter what it means, including the loss of your physical life, that might not necessarily be your race. But your race <laughs> is going to be predicated on your, the abilities God gives you, the decisions you've made, perhaps, how God works in your heart, and maybe most importantly, how you respond to that working. What do you do about it? Because remember, there's a Christ in you. Uh, you know, Colossians 1 talks about Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
God is always going to be working in you if you allow that, and then you get to respond to that. So your race is going to be predicated on, again, your abilities, your decisions. Your race may involve talking to a husband or a wife that wouldn't listen to anyone else otherwise about Christ or God or God's Word, or to children who may have made poor choices, or maybe they've made great choices, and you're going to continue to be an influence in their life, lifelong, for godliness. That may be your race. Your race may be you have a limited audience. You might be in here, and you're going to be, uh, you're going to have the desire to be a teacher of God's Word in a church, and you're going to have a larger audience. You may, it may be a home fellowship. The point is, you have a race. Just like Paul says, I have run the good race. You have a the race, too. Everybody does. The question, again, is not, are you in the race? The question is, sort of, are you aware of that? Are you running? Are you competing? Are you being deliberate about the walk and then the run, the competition? Because, I mean, that's the nature of Christianity. You know, Jesus said um, that the person who believes in Him in Luke chapter 9, He says to take up His cross and follow. There isn't anything about, that, about Christianity in general that's not sacrificial in nature. It's a, it's a walk, purposeful, or it's a run, it's a competition, maybe better in our terms. So everybody's got a race, um, and uh, the question is, what is your race, and are you running it with purpose? Because it's, that's between you and the Lord. I mean, you don't have to be accountable to me. I don't have to be accountable to you. You're accountable to the Lord for what you do now. In the future, again, not for salvation, but when we get to Romans 14, 12, he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or not, depending on how do we respond. When he works in us, what do we do? <clears throat> the other thing that hit me about Third uh, John Again, just as a glimpse into the church, this, you know, the, that analogy of walk and what that meant to them, the analogy of running and competing and what that meant to them versus what it might mean to us. The other thing that, again, in light of John being in his closing years, he's concerned about passing this on to the next generation, right? It's not like he's going to be around a lot longer, like Paul we read about in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, just before that, just before that, it's in four, uh, four six. He says, "For uh, Paul or Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure as it ha is at hand.' Just before this verse that we read, the point is, John wasn't going to be around. Paul wasn't going to be around. They're kind of passing the mantle, so to speak. They're concerned about the next generation. We see that." In 3 John, some, and in 2 John as well, when he talks about children. Let's look at uh, 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, where uh, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, this use of children is kind of figurative. That is to say, he's referring to Gaius, the fellow to whom he wrote this letter, as a spiritual child, so to speak. That is to say, he might have been you know, brought to salvation under John's ministry. So we see Paul do the same thing with Timothy. 
in First and Second Timothy both, he refers to Timothy as his true son. We see Peter do this with Mark, the same guy that wrote the gospel. He refers to Mark as his son in First Peter chapter 5. So this is sort of a spiritual child kind of thing. The other place we see this, though, is uh, actually we see it twice in our, um, let's look at 2 John uh, chapter, I'm sorry, 2 John chapter 1 verse 4. We see it again here in 2 John verses 3. He says there, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children, and he writes this epistle, remember too, it's, he is, she's just called the elect lady, walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. Now, those are physical kids. So what he is praising her for is that Christianity has been passed on from one generation to the next. That's what John wants. That's what, of course, we need to look toward as well. And um, I didn't, again, I don't have a slide for this, but t- turn, uh, take your Bibles or on your phones or whatever and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, so the God that established marriage one man, one woman, right? He established that. He established the only, I mean, arguably the only human relationship, really, because all other human relationships spring from that relationship. All other blood relationships spring from that. He establishes that first. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, so he wants them to have a family. He wants relationship with more people. So let's look at the purpose of the family, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And uh, Everybody there? And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. The reason I point that out is, just reading those verses, two things. Number one, what's the main purpose of the family? To learn God's word, number one. Number two, (laughs) for moms and dads, you know, husbands and wives who decide to have kids, and really for anybody who wants to just renew their mind, there's a great principle here, and that is (laughs) when he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down, rise up. So what other times are there besides when you're doing those things? The, The point being, to get God's word in our hearts takes very deliberate and consistent action. Whether you're an adult renewing your mind, learning a memory verse, trying to change a habit pattern for, to a godly pattern versus a not godly pattern, or if you're a kid and you're three years old and your mom and dad are raising you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that takes five million repetitions. You know, I, I don't know how many times when you were a kid, your mom or your dad told you to stand up straight. How many was that? Six million? Yeah. Do I hear seven million? Because that's how, that's how much it takes. It really does. How much a a physical habit like that, how much do you think it takes to make a mental habit? That's why that verse says what it says. You talk about them all the time. You don't not talk about them. Now, it's not like families have to always be like this. I'm not saying that. I'm only saying there has to be consistent training. The purpose of the family, really? And if you think about this, the God who created man for relationship 
made the only human relationship there was from which all others spring. Don't you think the family was designed to develop a relationship with him? There wouldn't be any other reason for a family other than to develop a relationship with him. There wouldn't be any other reason. So the fundamental purpose of the family was discipleship. It's, the, it's supposed to be just a fantastic discipling machine. That's what it's supposed to be. That's why the model of home fellowships are really based on family. I mean, that's what Jesus did with the 12. I, it's a, a little larger family with three specific, James, John, and Peter, that were kind of the inner circle. It was a, it's a discipling machine. That's what the family was supposed to be. And that's why when I read this in 3 John, 2 John and 3 John about kids, whether you're talking about spiritual kids, you know, like Paul and Timothy, Peter and Mark, you're talking about actual physical children, mom and dad decide to have kids. The point is, the purpose is to pass it to the next generation. That's what John is concerned about when we see 2 and 3 John. What is that next generation going to look like? What am I doing now that's going to affect what they do then? You know, practical example, I don't know how many kids, and this is a call to you youth. It's a call to the adults too because of what we're supposed to do now that's going to affect the youth. But it's a call to the youth because in 10 years, what's this room going to look like? Going to be this full? Going to be like a lot of churches and we don't have to have service there anymore because there aren't enough people? What's it going to look like? That is going to be predicated on what we do now, the kids, spiritual kids or physical kids. What are we doing now to affect the next generation? Because they have to grow up and be responsible. They have to grow up and understand that they're running a race, that they're in the race too, that discipling is constant, that there's always a next step. They have to do that. If they don't do that, what happens is, and I, I, there's lots and lots of examples. Um, I'm sure, and you probably know some, but... So my day job is I'm a physical therapist, and I go to people's homes, so I do a lot of driving. So once in a while, I have to go up um, to, to the north of Winston, uh, Old Hollow Road, I think it is. In any case, so there's a Moravian church there. There was a Moravian church there. And so I'm driving by, and they'll have, you know, Bible study Tuesday, 7.30, then driving by, and then all of a sudden, the sign changed. And I drive by one day, and it says... Um, it says, uh, I believe it was 1842 to 2022. It just had those two numbers, 1842-2022. The reason is the church closed. The church closed. Why? They didn't pass it on to the next generation. Somehow that didn't work. Now, there's another church in there now using the building, but the point is that one closed. So, again, practical example, what's this room going to look like in 10 years? What are, we, what are we, because, you know, there are tragedies that happen. There are losses of people. Some of us won't be here in 10 years. What are the youth going to look like? Are they going to come up and assume the role? Are they going to pass the mantle, so to speak, accept the mantle from us, so to speak? And second and third John make that point because of what he talks about with kids. I have no greater joy than my children walk in truth. And he praises the elect lady. Man, your kids are walking in truth. That next generation is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. And you, um, moms and dads, um, I just, I commend you. I encourage you. 
I will say, and I think my wife would probably talk about it now and then, but I think we would probably agree that it is more, it is increasingly difficult to raise children in our society. There are, you have to be more vigilant than probably you ever had to be before. Um, there are things you have to think about or be concerned about that you never had to think about or be concerned about before. So I commend you for that. Um, and our next generation relies heavily on you and on what you do now. So I, I really commend you for that. Um, could we see that map? The other reason that children caught my eye in this epistle. There we go. Okay, so this is the Roman Empire. The black, kind of the dark black line is the outline of the Roman Empire. But this is in 325 A.D. So the time we're writing, reading about, you know, when he wrote 2nd and 3rd John is about 85 or 90 A.D. So this is like 200 years or a little more later. This is the Roman Empire. But then the red areas, the reason I put that up there is the red areas indicate the spread of Christianity at the time, at this time in the Roman Empire. How widespread was it? Give you an idea of population. I mean, these are estimates. You know, there wasn't a census bureau then. We don't know for sure. But estimates by scholars. Um, this, this whole area probably had a population somewhere between 40 million and like 75 million. The whole Roman Empire. So, before I tell you how many Christians they estimate were there, let's, um, let's read. Oh, shoot. Okay, so you got to remember this. Let's read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 19. Okay, so that verse says, and I apologize, I'm missing you up here. I want to read Matthew 28, 16 and 19 because it indicates what they started with. Okay, so this is Jesus speaking, end of his ministry, before the ascension. He says, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountains which Jesus had appointed for them. And then this part, go therefore, he's speaking to these 11 guys. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, the verse says 11 guys. Now, there, there made it, you know, you, you might argue that there were more people, you know, the women that supported his ministry, the wives of the 11. There might have been a few more. But the point is, it was a small number. It was a small number that, to whom he says, and there wasn't a plan B here, guys. It wasn't like, and there wasn't media. I mean, they didn't have TVs, they didn't have radios, they didn't have internet, they didn't have smartphones. They had nothing. The only thing you could do is talk. There was nothing else you could do. There wasn't any other way to do it. So these 11 guys, he says, go and make disciples. So they do that, right? And apparently, the people they talked to were successful in passing it on to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation because by the time of that map, 325 A.D., estimates are there were 7 million Christians, 7 million Christians from 11 That's why the passing it on to the next generation, when we read in 2nd, 3rd John, he talks about physical children, he talks about spiritual children, that's why that's important. And it's critically important in our country. I, I don't, for Christianity, I don't know that there could be anything more pertinent than this, what, he, what we read about in 2nd and 3rd John, because of the state of the church in our country, because of the direction it's going. Um, I don't know that there could be anything more pertinent than that. 
Let's, uh, but the other thing that I thought of, well, first of all, let's, let's look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 8. And this is, again, it has to do with outreach. It has to do with, again, a glimpse into the early church, you know, what, how they spread the word, so to speak. In John chapter, I'm sorry, 3 John chapter 1, verse 8. I misspoke, misheard that. We therefore ought to receive such. He's referring to the missionaries that were coming in, and he was encouraging Gaius to receive them that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Now, I just wanted to point out, we do that here. And I, I encourage you to do, maybe you're doing this already. I encourage you to pray about these. I just wanted to show you a list of the missions that we currently support as the Way Fellowship. And this is donations that you all give that we then give to missionaries. So, and you can just cycle through them, it's fine, one at a time. Gospel for Asia, Baptist Children's Home, Missionary Air Group, if Friends of Koinonia in Peru, Vision Beyond Borders in Asia, Roderick Leach in Zanzibar, Tanzania, Steve Flores in Israel, Project RE3 here in Kernersville, Samaritan's Purse, that's also local, Drake's in Mango, Togo um, in West Africa, and then Poema in Kernersville. So we got locals, we got them all over the globe, and we are contributing. We're doing what this verse says. The one I wanted to encourage you to do, though, and this is, again, this is not, this is monies that people donate that we then give as a fellowship, right? But I encourage you to keep, like this talks about, keep these people very much in your prayers, very much in your prayers. For example, Steve Flores in Israel, I don't know his status, but it might not be good. I mean, there's a lot going on over there. I don't know exactly what the status is, but I can tell you for sure they need prayer. So I really encourage you, your donations support these missionaries. They're, it's exactly what 3 John 1.8 talks about. But I really encourage you, keep them in prayer. Okay, keep them in prayer. But uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, though, about this is you got to think about how, for example, you know, the 11 guys, how does it get to 7 million in uh, about 250, 275 years, 11 to 7 million. Let's read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a phrase here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's in verse 20. It says then, uh, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Now he goes on to say, um, we beseech you, you know, in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. He wanted, he wanted to repair that relationship. Now we're ambassadors of that. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Again, it's like the race. It's, it's not that we're not ambassadors. The question is not, are we ambassadors? The question is, what kind of ambassadors are we? That's the question. We're in the race. What kind of a race are we running? We are ambassadors. What kind of ambassadors are we? That's the question. And I ask myself this question, you know, talking to people about God's Word, sharing my faith with others, whatever, I, cleaning the toilets, setting up, teaching, whatever opportunities I have by way of service. This is part of my race. Again, you have a race. This is part of my ambassadorship. You have an ambassadorship. You're just as important. It's not like, 
one guy's going to, this is not the 95-5 rule. Like everybody up in front, they do all the work and we're going to watch and then we'll go home. No, that isn't how this works. This is everybody. This is everybody's running. This is everybody's an ambassador. So the way this works <laughs> is, uh, and you're able to, can you put that graphic up? Um, so the way, the, the way this works in a nutshell is, is each one reach one. Each one reach one. And we're going to use an example. We're just going to use a home fellowship, right? Let's say that you have a home fellowship. In year one, it's got 10 people. And we're going to say that each one reaches one only a, every year, one a year, right? So in the second year, you got 20. The third year, you got 40. The fourth year, you got 80, 160, 320, 640, 1280, 2560, 5120. In 10 years, you started with 10. In 10 years, if you only reach, reach one person once a year, you've got over 5,000. Do you see how it reaches critical mass? And that's how you get from 11 guys to 300 years later, 7 million Christians estimated, which, depending on the estimates that you accept for the Roman Empire in general, that's like either one in five or one in ten people profess the Christian faith. So it's just that the responsibility and privilege that God has allowed us to be ambassadors, to run in the race. Again, question is not are you running? The question is, the question is not are you in the race? The question is not are you ambassador? The question is what kind of a race are you running? What kind of an ambassador are you? You know, ambassador, really, I thought about this, like an ambassador to, let's say, the United States ambassador to the United Nations. So that individual, I don't even know who it is. I probably should, but I don't. Um, I don't know if it's a man or woman, but essentially, they represent the United States to the United Nations. Their appearance, the way they speak, um, the way they act, um, et cetera, et cetera, how they handle themselves in general is going to to represent to their body, their host, the United States. We're the same way with Christ. We're the same way. Again, as we've talked about before, people look at us. I'm the ambassador, you know. What's he looking like? Yeah, I'm not so good today. I'm not so sure about that, you know. Or, wow, handled that pretty well. That didn't go well at work, and you handled that pretty well. Because people read you. People look at you as an ambassador before they make a decision for themselves and probably before they read the Bible, if they read the Bible. Again, with kids, same way, you know. At some point, <laughs> it probably coincides. The Jewish, um, Jewish tradition was that they had a, a bar mitzvah um, where um, a boy would become son of the law, so to speak, at um, I think it was 13 years of age. In any case, it was kind of at a, an age when there was a, an age of decision, when people came to a point that they could make a decision for themselves. They realized self-responsibility. And every kid, every mom and dad that raises kids, your kids are going to get there. And when they get there, I'm sure you are doing your homework. I just really encourage you, do your homework. Because by then might be too late if you didn't do your homework because they're going to make a decision about Christianity, about following Christ based on their experience with you for the first 
five, seven, ten years. They're going to decide that based on you. So again, children, grandchildren, um, next generation. You know, I, I think about um, the trends in the United States are not great with the Christian church, you know, in terms of Christianity. They're not great. Some of them are actually good. It's not all bad, but some of them are not good. And I wonder, in 25 years, what that's going to look like. And I think about it more honestly at my wife's and my stage of life. I think about it more for my kids and grandkids, not so much for me, because they're the ones that are going to have to deal with it. They're the next generation. So... Uh, So, uh, regarding ambassadors, I thought about the fact that, you know, those missionary, the list of missionaries that we support, or if we read about Paul, for example, some people, like Paul, like those missionaries, um, they have decided to be an ambassador to everybody. Everybody. They're an ambassador to everybody. They have chosen to make their um, life's mission to represent Jesus in whatever setting. If you read about Paul, and I'm sure in some of these other areas that we support, some of those other missionaries, especially in foreign lands where you know, things maybe aren't real safe, those people have chosen to be an ambassador to everybody they meet. But everybody's an ambassador. You and I are ambassadors to somebody. It may not be to everybody, but you're an ambassador to somebody. It might be husband, wife, kids, grandkids, workers, Whatever it is, you're an ambassador to somebody. Again, the question is not, are you an ambassador? The question is, what kind of an ambassador are you? The question is, what are we doing now that's going to result in transitioning from 11 guys to 7 million? What are we doing? And, and the other option, <laughs> or the other thing to keep in mind is that inactivity is not an option. <laughs> to do nothing is a decision. Just like to do something is a decision. You know, it's not you're in the race. Are you running it deliberately or are you just kind of passive, not doing anything? So I just encourage you, very much encourage you. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about 3 John, it was sort of like 1 John at the very end. You may remember at the very end of 1 John, he says, uh, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. It's almost like he adds it as an afterthought. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He sort of adds a, kind of an ending or afterthought at the end of, of 3 John. And uh, he says in verse 14, but I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends. And then he says, by name. The reason that caught my eye is, um, so we talked about the fact that the early church had big groups, but for the most part, they were smaller groups, for the most part. Actually, until about 325, when Christianity as a religion became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So then, there's no more persecutions, it's okay to get together in big groups, you're not going to be killed for that, they're not going to throw you in prison, so it's okay. Not that there weren't big groups before that, but they were probably less because of the, the climate. <clears throat> so it was kind of intimate you know there weren't such a thing as what we think of in the United States megachurches those didn't exist um, as an example I was I read I had to read Romans 16 again to see how many people Paul greets by name in Romans chapter 16 and there are a couple that he greets not like he'll say so and so and greet his sister you know like that 
there are 26 people that he greets by name. Greet so-and-so, and greet so-and-so, and greet so-and-so, and greet so-and-so. 26 people that he greets specifically by name. The reason that caught my attention is, uh, again, God wants relationship. You may remember we looked at in Cain and Abel came up in 1 John chapter 3. And in that context, we looked at the fact that um, in Genesis 3, 8, it said, it, this is after Adam and Eve fell, after you know, they decided to disobey. And, and, so, and then they say, they heard the sound, the, the King James says voice, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The New King James says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. So they heard, what they heard was the sound of God walking in the garden, right? The point being, what do you think God was doing there? Who else would he be there to see but Adam and Eve? There wasn't anyone else. He wanted relationship. He wanted to fellowship with his created man and woman. He knew them by name. He knew them by name. And it, uh, I thought for myself, you know, we, uh, I think it's easy to forget that God knows you by name. He wants a relationship with you specifically. It's not like when we're responsible for what we do here and he says, good and faithful servant. He's, gonna, he's not going to say, good and faithful servant, believer A. No, no, he's not going to say that. He's going to say, good and faithful servant, Steve. Good and faithful servant, Linda. Good and faithful servant, whoever it is. It's a personal thing. Greet them by name, because that, was, that is what God would do with you. Um, and I, sometimes I wonder, I just wonder if, if I remember for myself, and I encourage you to think about this, if you remember that God knows you by name, does your God know you by name? Does your Savior, Jesus Christ, know you by name? He does. Do we realize it? It's a very personal relationship. It's very personal. It's critical that we understand that because, again, when you look at the whole biblical record, um, when you look at it started without death, and when you see a tragedy like we saw in, in Connie's life with her daughter, when you look at the beginning of the story and death wasn't part of the picture until after man's disobedience, and you look at the end of the story when death is abolished, the point is, that was never part of the plan. The plan was relationship, ongoing. That was the plan. Because that's what God brings it back around to in the book of Revelation. That's what he wanted. That's what everything points toward. A restoration of that original creation and what it was supposed to be. So we just have to remember, God, does your God, does my God, does your Savior, my Savior, does he know you by name? Because he absolutely does, ladies and gentlemen. He absolutely wants that relationship with you. Personal, everyday, intimate, prayer, talking, he wants that relationship with you. And I really encourage you to, to keep that in mind. So with Third John, again, a glimpse into the church, you know, we see that idea of walk and how that got kind of kicked up to run, that we're all in the race. It's not that we're not in the race, it's that are we deliberate about running the race, okay? And then that next generation, you know, children, spiritual children, physical children, what are we doing now that's going to result in this room being full in 10, 15 years? Fuller than it is. Two services. Uh, uh, traffic jams on Sunday morning. Wouldn't it be great? 
You know, I drive out of my neighborhood and I look that way and I look that way and there's not a car. Wouldn't it be great if I couldn't get out? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Sunday morning, traffic jam. Wow, everybody's going to church. No way. Wouldn't that be fantastic? What are we doing now to that end? So, great truths from, from uh, John. Um, if, you, if you haven't come to a saving knowledge of Christ, if you want to know Jesus as your Savior, if you sort of want Him to know your name, so to speak, and you haven't done that before, I'm going to invite you to pray with me to start that relationship. Um, if you have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, if you already have that relationship, I encourage you to really consider, uh, think about in your daily activities the condition of that relationship, how to improve it. Because on, for God's part, for Jesus' part, and Jesus even talks that there's a continuing ministry for Christ, right? He says he makes intercession for the saints. He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. That's now. So even though he served here, even though he died for our sins, resurrected, ascended, he's still serving. He's still interceding on our behalf. God, Jesus, always want a stronger relationship. I encourage you to consider that. From your perspective, what can you do to make it stronger? What can you do to enhance it? Because that's always what he wants. So if you would, pray with me.